A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin. Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365 and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. As far as Premier League football is concerned, the countdown has begun. It's T-16. Three more days to wait for Championship football. That's scheduled to begin on June the 20th, though the clubs are up in arms about a lack of consultation. We'll look at that later. But first, Liverpool a year to the day after they won the Champions League in Madrid. They're going to follow up by winning the Premier League. Now, there's been a lot of talk about neutral venues aid. Does it actually matter where or how they win the title? It doesn't matter really, does it? Because the gloss, in many respects, has been taken off. They won't be able to enjoy and savour the moment with their supporters. There'll be no packed downfields. There'll be no, you'll never walk alone. There'll be no trophy lift, no no, no parades through the streets of Liverpool. So, so it's going to be a bit flat anyway. So no, it doesn't really matter. But I must confess, I'm, I am baffled. And it's a real head scratcher for me that some of their games are being considered as neutral venues. They're saying that they can't play at Anfield, obviously for fear of fans turning up. And I, I, I just, I feel, I feel really sad about that because it, it's, it's in essence suggesting that Liverpool fans aren't trustworthy compared to the rest of the supporters in the division. I get the fact that they're about to win the league, and and that might spark some kind of rush to Anfield. But look, if if they were to win it in an away game, if they were to win it in a home game played, let's say, at Villa Park, a neutral ground, what's to stop fans then flocking to Anfield anyway, if that's instinctively what they feel that they want to do? Personally, I don't get why they would do that but in, in this scenario, but, but that is more than plausible. So, yeah, it, it's a strange one for me. I also feel that, that Liverpool fans will surely not congregate around Anfield during a game. Surely, if you're a Liverpool fan, You'll want to watch it on a decent telly, won't you? You'll, you'll want to listen it, listen to the games on the radio if you can't get access to the telly. Listen where you can actually hear it on the radio, not where you're in a group of people outside your stadium. I, I, it's a head scratcher for me, and and, and personally, I, I still hold out hope that the police will will just trust the supporters, trust Liverpool Football Club to to, to campaign and and instruct their supporters not not to come to the ground. Yeah, because as as you know, Jurgen Klopp says he doesn't really care where they win it. But I suppose the the fundamental issue, and it's it's got broader implications, Seb, that lack of trust in fans 
there is this lingering mistrust of football supporters simply because they support a football club. You know, is it a social issue we're trying to deal with here as well as a sporting issue? No, without question, Mike. Football fans have always been treated like a disease. That's proven in history. The costs of doing that are proven by history. I think it's a kind of a truism that, that applies across sport and across society. If you treat someone badly, they will generally respond without any sort of benevolence. It's very dispiriting, Mike, because it's no one ever seems to learn from this. No one ever... I mean, if you if you spend time in Europe, for instance, and I mean, I know I've mentioned this on the pod before, but I went to Spurs' Champions League game in Leipzig and I saw the kind of the way that the local authorities treated that occasion and the way the home and away fans were policed. It was it was kind of very much with a it was almost like a subliminal presence, background presence. It wasn't that kind of overbearing mounted police type situation that you seem to find up and down the country every weekend. And you felt like people were there to help you rather than there to, in capital letters, police you. And the expectation always seems to be that football fans, before any event, the planning seems to be bent around a situation where football fans are definitively going to misbehave, and in large numbers, always. There's always the assumption. And if you look around society, if you look around the different parts of our country, in what other situation does that apply? I, you know, I mean, it's like another prejudice. I mean, one of the issues that I'd have with neutral venues plan is it only seems to apply to clubs from certain parts of the country which i find very difficult to tolerate that's a i mean i i I, maybe maybe i've got that wrong but then that's a decision which needs a little bit more context we need to understand why that is why is that you you need to you need to incorporate these measures for supporters from manchester from liverpool from the northeast logically it doesn't make an awful lot of sense so i'd want to i'd want to understand that a little bit more yeah, I suppose, you know, football doesn't exist in a bubble. And, and and it does, you know, this sort of debate does lead into other areas where actually it was highlighted in the Bundesliga over the weekend where football looks so out of touch in the way that it penalises players for, you know, showing, you know, basically trying to curtail their freedom of expression. You know, Jaden Sancho was booked for pulling off his shirt and revealing a justice for George Floyd T-shirt. His teammate, Hakimi, did the same thing and wasn't booked, so it's inconsistently applied. You've got Marcus Turam invoking Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee after scoring against Union Berlin. Is it a healthy thing, Adrian, that players express themselves not just as footballers but as human beings i think so yeah i absolutely do and and i think that the vast majority of people would would think more of those players for for the support for for actually thinking in the in the, in the heat of the moment for thinking of of the bigger picture and what's going on in the world and 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 i i support those players it is it is a a travesty really that that players will be Punished for that. I, I, I've never really understood the whole shirt off, yellow card business. Anyway, I kind of get that players' political gestures are controversial, and they're you know they they will please some people and and really anger others. And there is a there's a danger there, and I don't necessarily feel it should be encouraged. But for me, those players enhance their reputations by doing what they do. I, one one of the interesting things, guys. So I just want to jump in. Like, is that 
some people seem to want it to have it both ways. They want to be able to criticize, I mean, flares for living in a, in a, you know, inverted commas bubble um, and living these sheltered lives. On the other hand, when they do speak out, they get criticized for that too. I always think back to a long, long time ago now, I think it's about 25 years, but I remember Robbie Fowler's t-shirt and support of the Liverpool Dockers when they lost their jobs. I want players to do that kind of thing because I want players to be aware of what's happening in their community. How can someone like Jaden Sancho or Marcus Turan not be aware of what's happening in America at the moment? How can you ask them not to be? It's a, an extraordinary argument. With, with, with regards to the, the laws and, and sort of the booking players for for taking off shirts, I kind of understand that because what can referees really do? I think the game has to adapt around that kind of situation. I think it has to develop a slightly more complex law which deals with exceptional circumstances, which this very much is. Aren't they getting rid of this law anyway? I don't know. I mean, mate. in I terms know. of in terms of taking off your shirt, I, I, I've never never really understood what the what the isn't problem it, was. Isn't it to protect sponsors? So that if you take off a shirt as a goal scorer, then you're you're kind of denying a visibility to a sponsor when at <laughs> wow. the most sort of wow. camera worthy moment. That <laughs> I, that might be another myth. I don't know. But uh, I don't yeah, know, well, yeah. It, it, I think it was it was brought in, wasn't it, about 2014, and it was is you know specifically looking at the political and 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 the religious slogans which which were becoming popular i suppose and also that we had the personal ones didn't we would actually you know when you know someone takes their shirt off and it's commemorating a friend or a family member i think that's a very heartwarming thing to do while we're on sancho hat trick at the weekend this lad's going to go for a lot of money even despite the financial circumstances you know in a matter of months isn't he well, he's a very special player, isn't he? Yeah, uh, there they won't be. I suppose all of the big guns will be will be interested in him. It is a question of finance, isn't it? And structuring a deal and who needs the money most, or yeah, or who needs the player the most. It's it's hard to call where where he would go, but he would improve any. I think Jaden Sancho would improve any of the top six sides in the Premier League, and and that would include Liverpool because. He would compete with the likes of Salah and, and, and Mane and just apply that bit of pressure and it would give Firmino a bit of a nudge as well in terms of the fact that you can play Mane or, or Salah down the middle as well. So, so yeah, I think he would improve all of the top six sides who's prepared to, to spend that much money at the moment. I, I suspect that Borussia Dortmund will, will cash in on him. And, and that Jaden himself may, may decide to go. Personally, I'd like to see him have one more year in Germany because he's. I can only see him getting better and better at, at Dortmund. The problem is, I think if you are an interested party, like, like a Manchester United, funnily enough, now is probably the time to get him because transfer fees in general will surely be lower now than they would be in a year's time and in a year's time after a season of, of progress. His price could easily double. So, so look, if you do, if you do want to speculate on Jaden Sancho, now is the time to do it. You just have to take a big hit at a bad time. Yeah, I suppose if we're thinking about what if scenarios, I've always wondered what would have happened had Robert Lewandowski come to the Premier League. He'd have won the Golden Boot, mate. That's what he, would have done. <laughs> he would have done, wouldn't he? But you know, it's forty-three goals this season. He's equaled his best season. He's, he's emblematic in many ways, isn't he, Seb, of a Bayern team, which looked to me at the moment to be the best side in Europe. Oh, goodness me, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. So I was watching their game over the weekend. I was watching the way they play, and it's full of all these kind of intricate moments and these subtleties. 
these aren't really qualities that I associate with Bayern Munich. I might be wrong in that, but I, I it's kind of even when they were coached by Pep Guardiola, who you know coaches very attractive football, but it's quite rigid. It's quite structured in its way, and now it's kind of a bit more freeform. And you see the the influence of obviously someone like Lewandowski, but the kind of the the breadth of influence of someone like Serge Gnabry, for instance, and the kind of the different positions that he crops up in, and and then you've got players coming off the bench like Mikel Cuisance, who who just sort of fit in and they kind of ad lib their way through the games. I mean, they are awfully impressive, and I think it's interesting because it's it's kind of. Obviously, about a week ago, they had that game against Borussia Dortmund and Dortmund seemed to be coming to the end of their cycle. They're going to have to probably lose Sancho. Haaland's not going to be there forever. So they're going to have to, to go into renewal. And the logic was that Bayern, a year ago, when when Robin and Ribery left and Müller was coming towards the end and Hummels was sent back, it was sold back to Borussia Dortmund. The logic was that that was going to happen too. And now you don't see the break. You don't see the end of one cycle and the beginning of another. You just see this continuation of a, a really intimidating standard. They're losing Boateng at the end of the season as well. He's been a linchpin of that defence for a really long time. You see now Alfonso Davis drop in at, at fullback. He's just, I know we've been aware of him for a long time, but I don't think people assumed that he was going to develop into this calibre of player. And so it's it's remarkable and and. I can't see a team in Europe that could live with that at the moment. Not even, I mean, especially with Liverpool out of the Champions League. They look awfully strong, but they're also great fun to watch, which I don't think I've ever said that about Bayern Munich before. I feel a little bit dirty saying it, maybe. But, <laughs> I mean, genuinely, they're, You're they're, they're thrilling. You're a hard man to please. Absolutely You're a hard man to please, sir. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, um, you know, in, the, in that context of the, of the Champions League, where would you fit Manchester City aid in the runners and riders? Do you think they'll use the setback of losing you know, the Premier League to Liverpool to almost galvanise the rest of their season? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I, I, I see them as outsiders still. I don't. I look at Bayern Munich and think they're ahead of, of Manchester City because of their, the, the all-round balance of the team. I talked before about the City weaknesses, clearly, clearly in the structure of, of their off-the-ball work. And I think against the elite in European football, that's where they've come unstuck before. Where I think they they will probably come unstuck again. So yeah, I'd put Bayern Munich ahead of them. I think I think they might struggle against Atletico, Barca and Juve. They'd be cracking games. You know, it could go either way. They, they could reach the semis. They could reach the final. But but I, I personally still still think that there are a couple of sides ahead of them in terms of in terms of what's happening with the with the possible ban being upheld or the ban being upheld. It could work two ways. I think that it could be the case that the likes of De Bruyne and Aguero or the star men, the, 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 not so much Aguero, the, the star men in their pomp, the peaks of their careers, it will hit them. It will be a jolt to them. And they might be thinking, crikey, do I really want to sit out the Champions League for, for a couple of years in, in, at my peak? That could create a really unsettling effect inside the dressing room at the Etihad. The other thing it could do is, is galvanise them this year and make them even more determined. While we are here, while we are in it, we've got to win it. We've got to take this chance. It could fire them up even more to to, to go on and make history. So, so yeah, it's, it's a huge, huge time for the club. And, you know, personally, I I, I believe the ban should be upheld and, and, and they're just going to have to take their medicine, Manchester City. But it'd be fascinating to see the reaction of their star men, particularly 
Kevin De Bruyne because this is a guy that, that should be playing the Champions League. Mm. Do you think you know, they still can potentially win a, win a treble this season when it's eventually completed? You know, having won the League Cup as per usual, got a quarterfinal tie uh, against Newcastle in the FA Cup. And, you know, we've, we've been talking through the implications of the Champions League. Knowing Guardiola, that will be what he's saying to them behind closed doors, wouldn't it? Look, forget everything else. Let's show them that we can go out and win three trophies in a season. I guess so. I, I just, I, I, I just not sure whether that's an achievable aim. I, I suspect they probably will win the FA Cup. But I mean, ha, given what we've just said about Bayern Munich and the complexity of their forward line, do we think that Manchester City's defence is good enough to cope with that kind of side? I don't think so. I think City will be bounced out by the first good team they play. That's not to say that Guardiola hasn't built something brilliant over the last few years. It's just that at the moment, it's only the front sort of 60% of that team, which is really European class. I think in a way, it, one of the sort of subplots for this summer is obviously prior to the, the pandemic and its potential financial effects, we were expecting a big defensive rebuild at City, Mike. Now that still needs to happen, but what's the market like? They're probably going to get some revenue over the weekend. It did seem as if Leroy Sané's move to uh, to Bayern Munich is done, so they're going to get a big fee there. Beckenbauer seemed to be, oh, sorry, not Beckenbauer, it was um, Uli Hernes sort of, seemingly talking a little bit out of turn about what, what may or may not already have been done, which angered a few City fans. But, you know, that then they're not, that is the weak link. They've got problems at fullback because Benjamin Mendy can't stay fit. Centre-back, it just, no matter what they try, if Amrit Laporte isn't fit, there's a problem. And that shouldn't be the case given how much has been spent on that defence in the past. That's, that's their weak link. That's why they haven't won the Champions League up until now. And, I can't see them coping with a Bayern Munich, but also if you think of some of the other teams left in that competition, I still, you know, can they cope with the very best on the continent? I don't think so at the moment. Let's look at uh, the clubs who perhaps have got most to gain from the restart. And I'm thinking obviously in terms of qualification for next year's Champions League. Can you see a Manchester United making a late run here? Because, you know, their fixture list is pretty good, isn't it? They've got four of the bottom six to play. And there is a sense, I don't know what you feel, almost like a gathering momentum there. Yeah. You know, because of those links with, they've been linked with Sancho, they're, they're now being also being linked with Kai Havertz. So there's this, you know, the Empire Strikes Back theme going on in the background, <laughs> isn't there? Yeah, and, and no one's moaning about Oli. And, uh, and and they can just crack on and, and, and unleash themselves. You know, this exciting young team. They are a team in development. They're not perfect. They're, in many respects, not ready for high-end Champions League football, not in the way that the great United sides were, but but they've got a chance. And I, I certainly don't fancy Chelsea to, to sprint clear of the chasing pack. I think it's going to be really, really tight. And, and United have got a great chance. You've got Rashford coming back, of course. Huge. Yet to play alongside Bruno Fernandes, by the way, Marcus Rashford. So what an exciting axis that is. And then I've seen pictures and, and, and discussions on Paul Pogba and, and, and Paul Pogba lining up alongside Fernandez as well. Now, if Pogba and Rashford come back into a, that team that were doing pretty well, you have to say, before the break, then, then yeah, that is, that is exciting. They've got a lot to gain, United. They, they certainly fancy their chances. I think the break has been a win for Spurs. They've got Kane and, and Son Hyun-Ming back. So, so they've suddenly got, got that, that lift 
it, yeah, it's yeah. The, 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 I think a lot of teams have got stuff to gain. It's it's Chelsea really at the top end of the table that are, that may be the ones looking over their shoulders uh, from June the seventeenth onwards. I think Leicester are probably too far too far clear. Wolves for me have the best fixture list, and they are well. We know that they're incredibly hard to beat, and. I, I, it, it would not it would not be a shock to me if Wolves finished fourth. Yeah, they, they're certainly my dark horses as well, and I, I suspect you're the same, Seb. I know you've, you've been really impressed with them. Do you think Adama Traore? He's again been linked to Liverpool. Will that sort of speculation divert him? Do you think, or you know, is the management structure or is Nuno's force of personality so great that he'll be kept? you know, on the leash, as it were. I like to think it'd be the latter, Mike. The more I read about this sort of transformation in Adama Traore, the more it seems that he's responded to a particular type of person, particular type of coach, whether, I mean, as, as um, unlikely as it sounds, originally that was Tony Pulis. Pulis was really the first person to treat him with the care and consideration that he needed. And Nuno and his coaching staff have obviously taken that a step further. So, you know, all the reports we read about him, he's apparently a very humble man, very, very you know, just a, a very well-liked person. There don't seem to be many stories of sort of great ego or a player that's liable to get ahead of himself. It's also mentioned just, you know, how intelligent he is contextually in relation to some of his teammates. And I think that kind of that kind of player generally recognises what's good for them in the sense of what kind of situation benefits them the most. And having, I wouldn't say made a name for himself because Adam Atreo has been a name for a really long time for a variety of reasons. But having sort of accelerated, you know, operative word, to this new peak in his career, why would you leave that behind? I mean, I, I saw, I covered uh, Tottenham's game at Molyneux when they somehow won. But Adam Atreo is, is probably, I know it's a, a little bit of a neologism and, and, you know, a horrible little modern word that we use too much, but he was genuinely unplayable. And I've never seen I've never seen anyone do that to Jan Vertonghen. But just the sort of the the way he's <laughs> well, used... more and more people are doing it to Jan Vertonghen. Well, maybe now, but then then it was news. <laughs> like it was it was kind of um, it was one of the most forceful bits of wing play. And I don't think I've seen a winger play like that for you know probably about ten or fifteen years. But he just looks so suited to playing in that system. But also with players like Raúl Jiménez, Diogo Jota. And Ruben Neves and Jamatino sort of providing him balls from the centre. I, I think he's he's in the perfect scenario. And why would you trade that away for kind of a lunge at, you know, for instance, Liverpool, where he's not going to start. He's not a sort of, he doesn't have the range of abilities that someone like Salah or Mane has. There's absolutely no need for him to be going anywhere. And I think, I hope he'd recognise that. Uh, yeah, ambition though. And, and look, as, as brilliant as we, we think Wolves are, that they're, they're not one of the, the big six clubs in, in the country, not yet anyway. So, yeah, look, I, I think his head could be turned. I certainly think that if, if one of the big guns came in, I'm not saying he would itch for a move, but but that's not beyond the realms of possibility. By the way, Trey, I did a piece or a series of pieces on partnerships for the Premier League recently, and and basically I classified Adama Traore and Raul Jimenez as the best partnership in the division. No two players have set up more goals for each other than those two. It's quite remarkable. And it's not just one way. It's not all about Traore dashing down the wing and cutting it back for Raul Jimenez. Although that's happened a lot. It's also about Raul Jimenez sometimes dropping in on a counter, turning and, and playing that killer pass 
for Traore to run onto. He did it twice at the Etihad, and it's happened on numerous occasions. These two guys together are gold. I, I'd really, almost add a to that, AD. Like, just yeah. because yeah. Like, you, you just you see the way he responds to someone like Jimenez as well. Like Those three, as a unit, I don't think they get nearly enough recognition for what they are. Brilliant players and a brilliant unit. Yeah, I, I, you know, if you look at their fixtures, as, as you, know, you mentioned earlier on, I, I just look, I, I sort of ringed one fixture, which is the game against Chelsea, as a potentially decisive element of the what we have to call, call the run-in now, I suppose. With Chelsea, this is going to be the acid test of Frank Lampard's management style. You know, he's brought the feel-good factor back. He's encouraged youth. But this is now where they've got to get down and dirty, isn't it, Seb? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's where you've... If there is one weakness, there's one sort of flaw in Chelsea's season, it's been the ability just to tick off those games at home. Think of the games that they've lost and dropped points in. And now that's the only currency. And and also, you know, the, the longer these games... I mean, the more more games they try and cram into this period, we've spoken about this before, of course, but the greater the physical burden on the players, and that's almost certainly going to be to the detriment of style and tactical cohesion. And so the currency is very much just getting it done. One of the things I'm really interested in, Mike, is when they come back, obviously, we've got sort of the slightly nebulous issue with N'Golo Kante, which is quite sure what his status is at the moment. But Lampard's going to have a choice between, obviously, we remember just before the, the lockdown, Billy Gilmore playing really, really well. Is he going to accommodate Jorginho back into the side? Who's going to be the player that missed out, misses out? Because Kovacic has had a good season. Mason Mount has actually, after a little bit of a dip in the, you know, around sort of Christmas time, he started to play the best football of his year. Ross Barkley was starting to improve. So he's got a little bit of a selection dilemma in the middle. I've still got a few issues with the defence, particularly left back, because I don't think either of them are really up to it, either uh, Alonso or Emerson. And the goalkeeper, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I, 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 I think it's a funny thing to say because um, they don't have Chelsea's history at this top of the table, at the top of the table, but I think I trust Wolves a little bit more. Just in terms of the players there, there's a few few players at Stamford Bridge you just think probably shouldn't be there anymore or probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. And the goalkeeper, I think, is top of that list. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an acid test for Lampard, though, Mike. I think it's a kind of... You could almost see a situation where if it falls apart and they drop to a sort of a fifth or a sixth, I think that's a mandate for Lampard to do a bit, of, a bit more reconstruction because he inherited something imperfect with a lot of flaws with also a transfer ban. So I think it's kind of going to reflect on who's there. I think I think it's more true that sort of some of these players are playing for their long-term Chelsea careers. I think he gets a free pass, whatever happens. As, as he should, and he deserves one. And I suppose all this ties into you know the series that we started last time about which players could emerge as the most valuable players at their club, you know, in the restarts. Now, you know, I'll try to go sometimes, you know, for less obvious choices to maybe just to stimulate our debate but where Chelsea are concerned I look at Olivier Giroud you know new contract point to prove he's someone who I think has be, could become an absolutely pivotal figure in the, in what remains of the season now you've known him well at, at you know for his Arsenal days Adrian what what do you feel about that and in terms of not just his ability is and experience but his character as well yeah i've been lucky enough to meet him a few times and he's a good 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 guy very personable takes his football seriously and look he's, he's fiercely ambitious even at this stage of his career he he's not he looked throughout his career just people have always written him off and said that he's not quite good enough yet yeah, he, he's won so much 
and he's contributed to so many great moments as well down the years. I I, I really like Olivier Giroud as a player, and 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 I think actually it was a slight failing on Lampard's part not to incorporate Giroud a little bit more often, just to give Tammy Abraham the odd breather here and there to apply some subtle competition. He showed great faith in Tammy, but I think he missed a trick by leaving him on the bench as often as he did Olivier Giroud. If you can say he missed a trick when they're fourth, which I think is the best they could have really hoped for this season post-Hazard. So, so yeah, no, I think he's great. He's, he's a wonderful link man. And when you consider the players around the striker, your, your Williams, your Hudson-Odois, your Mason Mounts, etc. He's a great foil, someone to bounce balls off. And, and he scores big goals. He, he's always scored big goals. And he's also scored a ton of goals from the bench. And I think it's, it's these kind of guys are, are going to be so valuable on the resumption. My pick, by the way, it would be someone that hasn't got, got a mention yet. And that's Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Back fit. He's back fit. He's in full training. And you look at what he did last season before he got injured on, on that postseason tour. He was second only to Eden Hazard in terms of completed dribbles. You know, he can beat a man with a surge, with a piece of powerful play, with some quick feet. He can play in a number of positions. I just think he's going to be an absolute prize asset to Lampard in the coming weeks. He also can score off the bench. He, he changed it. I looked at the stats, actually, of what he did off the bench last year. And the time he was on the pitch, Chelsea scored 15 goals and conceded three. And they averaged a goal every half hour. Now, over the course of the whole season, Chelsea averaged a goal every 52 minutes. So he is a guy that that is an impact player. And, and I think he'll come off the bench. I don't think he'll start straight away. But he can offer competition up up top. He can play in behind. He can play in that three. And if Conte isn't isn't available, then he would add a really powerful strand there. So yeah, I, I think look out for Loftus Cheek, providing of course he's he's fit enough to be involved. And and from what I've read, he he's in full training. Yeah, and we'll go on to Crystal Palace if we could. Now, you know, with Palace, with the greatest respect, it's, we usually refer to them as sort of Wolf Sahar and ten other randoms, don't we? Really. Um, you know, hugely well organised, and will probably, although they've got a, a pretty rough fixture list, they'll probably have enough to stay up again. And I think you, know, you can't give Roy Hodgson enough praise because of that. I just want to highlight a player who's one of my favourite players, actually, and Andros Townsend. You know, the resilience that he showed, the energy that he's got, the experience he's accumulated in a side which is striving to you know be equal to the sum of its parts he's the sort of player that they need to actually kick on in many ways over the next couple of weeks he's had his injury issues obviously this season so from your point of view is he the sort of player that a club like Palace depend upon I'm not sure I'd go that far I think it's I, I think I'll put it he's the kind of player that a club like Palace benefit from having good footballer Good person, Andros Townsend. Really likable guy. I think he's been badly done over the course of his career because, you know, people had their fun with him about the way he would shoot and cut in. And, you know, at Spurs especially, that was what he was instructed to do when he first came into the side. And that's what Andre Villas Boas wanted him to be doing. He would kind of, he was one of the players that sort of had to, to fit into the, um, the Gareth Bale shaped hole, which, you know, it's not a particularly enviable position to be in for anybody. 
but I feel like for the rest of the, his career, that's kind of that's kind of given the impression of an inferior footballer, which is completely unfair. He's a very very talented player. Can I just give a little sh- shout out to Jordan Ayew? Actually, in that Palace side, it's a little bit of a mea culpa on my part because back in pre-season, I think I actually used Jordan Ayew as a kind of cipher with which to whip Palace's recruitment. Um, you wouldn't have been the only one. I don't think I was yeah. the only one, but I, I might as well own it now. But he's been absolutely excellent. He's a funny footballer because he's he he does a lot of good things, but not often in a in a continuous sequence. So he can finish really well. He's a, he's technically a good player. He's Palace's top scorer. I think he's got eight goals a season, which is not you know a, a huge amount. Alan Shearer's goal scoring record is probably safe from Jordan Ayew. But it's one of those success stories, and I think it reflects really well on Roy Hodgson. He's used a player who's not really a centre-forward to score a lot of really important goals in a lot of really important situations. The thing about those eight goals is that if you attach them to points that they've earned and the, the games that they've won, you can make okay a little bit of a tenuous case, but I is one of the most valuable players in the league at the moment. He's in that sort of clutch of players beneath Wilfred Zaha, and I'd include Andros Townsend in, in this, who have really benefited from Hodgson being there. I mean, Hodgson's reputation will never really recover from from England and Iceland. Unfortunately, that's really unfair. But he's done a splendid job. And I maintain, the reason I bring up IU and the recruitment is because I still think the recruitment is pretty poor. And I think Hodgson has done a, a really good job of managing his way around that and of adapting players who into sort of situate, into positions in which they're, you know, the most valuable. And it's a success story, Palace, which is quite unlikely. But yeah, they, these these guys are very important to it, obviously. Very, very, very quickly before we move on uh, on the recruitment, the one that they did get right was the keeper. Yes, uh, the yes. Greater. I mean, he this, is this brilliant. Guy, he's, he's a match winner, and yeah. um, if you look at and I, and I, I don't love Optus times G ratio particularly. I just think it's a little bit flawed. But but he's top dog in it, and according to them, he's he's basically he has stopped almost ten goals that they should have conceded. He's the, he's the keeper with the highest times G ranking great. XG, Adrian, XG. You sound like a Luddite. XG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see him trying to smash his laptop from here. Just hates machines, hates technology. Oh, <laughs> I, I just, I've always called it times G anyway. Look, look, it's a good job I normally have to write it down rather than yeah. speak it then, isn't it? <laughs> 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 it's, it's got you know it's my it's my maths a level coming back in you see I, you know little x is a times so yeah anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah, did you pass by the way of course i did oh, good boy, good <laughs> i did boy. it as a, i did it as a footballer interestingly so yeah it was it was one that also allowed me to to to, to sort of do a levels in in my spare time and i went back to my old school and and did it in the sixth form so yeah it was uh yeah i scraped by in the end i have to say i started well faded and clung, clung on. I clung on desperately for a, for a C, I think it was. <laughs> top man, top man. So let's, let's talk about another goalkeeper then, if we could. At Everton, Jordan Pickford. Now, he's the sort of player who needs probably an immediate lift in both form and confidence. Under pressure at England level, you know, seems to retain the faith of Gareth Southgate, but obviously, you know, Nick Pope at Burnley and uh, Dean Henderson at Sheffield United are really giving him a a run for his money. You know, I've got a great respect for the knowledge of, uh, you know, Dave Priest, who's late of this parish, now in, in still in, in Sweden. You know, he is a goalkeeping expert and he still is basically in Jordan Pickford's corner. What do you think about him, Seb, in, in, in terms of an overall package, not just a technical goalkeeper, 
but almost like are there slight sort of rough edges to his personality which can count against him as well I've never encountered any of those rough edges. I mean, I've mixed on him a few times and he's a, he's a really likable guy, really forthright. He's very much of the new generation where he he answers questions as they're put to him and um, he's intelligent and smart. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I, I have my doubts. I don't really want to contradict Precy, not with that facial hair that he's growing at the moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyone, doesn't, anyone who hasn't seen that, have a look through his Instagram at the moment. That's uh, Yeah, he's, he's fallen off the rails since he, he left this podcast. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've spoken about my um, my fondness for Dean Henderson before. I think he's had a brilliant season. I think had Euro 2020 taken place this summer, Pickford's reputation would have saved him and Gareth Southgate's faith would have been decisive. With another year, another season, I think the kind of the, the, the base level of, of Pickford's performances has to pick up. There are too many mistakes. There are too many moments where, you know, they're not, they're not howlers. They're not like the, the Origi goal he conceded at Anfield last season. There are too many goals he concedes where you think, ah, that doesn't look quite right. Or there's, you know, I, I know people have fun with his kind of his slightly short arms, but there's a kind of, there's almost like a, a soft wristness about him, which has crept into his game, which I never used to associate with him when he came through. And I think it's form. I, I don't think we should suddenly start saying, you know, Jordan Pickford's a bad goalkeeper because he's not. He's an exceptional goalkeeper. He's just one that maybe has suffered because of the the sort of, you know, the the situation at Everton prior to Carlo Ancelotti. Let's not overlook that. They've got some big defensive issues with a bit of flux, and they've got some. He's got some centre backs ahead of him who haven't had the greatest seasons. So it's a question of form, but it does need to improve. Yeah. What What's your take? Aid on on Everton as a whole, you know. Seb mentioned Carlo Ancelotti there. You know, you only have to look at his track record to understand that you know he will bring them round. What will you be looking for from them over the next few weeks? Well, they need to pick up their form. Um, they sort of dipped dipped off a little bit. I, I rate Ancelotti. I think they've absolutely got the right manager. Uh, they, they were just up front, fantastic. Richarlison and, and Calvert-Lewin, a, a, a really promising partnership. Two young players, hungry, that work well together. And they, they are particularly well-suited to playing with, with attacking fullbacks. And And we've seen already with Luca Dina and Gibral Sidibe on the other side. That, that Those four players, fantastic. You could substitute Seamus Coleman in there for Sidibe if you wanted. It's in central midfield where they are lacking big time. I think they've got problems. Gabamin who they bought to be the sort of enforcer, has broken down again, I believe, in training. He's, so he's not going to be available. I just think there's a void in the middle of the park where where they're a little bit weak. And, yeah, just, just not sold not sold on them off the ball. But, but look, Everton, Everton are a solid team. But, but those people that sort of put them in the top four category or potential top four category. I, I, I think they're eating their words. They're, they're quite some way off of that at the moment. But look, over over eighteen months, maybe Ancelotti can get them there. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned top four category. You know, I think we all agreed that Leicester will stay there. I'll be interested to see how Jamie Vardy gets on in the rest of the season. I think it's been really noticeable how the decision to move away from international football has helped him. As an older player, he's learning to make the most of his talent in terms of actually eking it out a bit more. I think when you look at him, I think he'll score more goals when we do get back. Yeah, I think that's probably right, Mike. I think one of the things that Vardy's really benefited from is I think he's someone that needs to be loved. 
the difference between Rogers management and Claude Puel who came before him is, is, is kind of one of them is, is their treatment of Vardy. He wants to be treated as the main man and he is being and he wants to be guaranteed of his place and that's happening too. And I don't, I mean, the international thing, I don't know. I think you need a player's opinion on that. I mean, I, I don't know what sort of physical difference that, that creates and, you know, how much easier that makes life. It's a, it's a question for a Paul Scholes, isn't it, really? I mean, you know, how, how much, how much more career can you get out of an early international retirement? I'm not sure. Player I'd like to put in there also is Harvey Barnes. I think he's been great. I covered Leicester's game at Man City and they ended up losing and it was ultimately a disappointing day. But if you go back to Jamie Vardy's goal, uh, goal to open the game, there's a wonderful carved Harvey Barnes pass right at the heart of it, like outside of the right foot, down the line. He's just he's a wonderful footballer. And I don't think he gets the attention of someone like a, a James Madison, good player that Madison is. But I think I think Barnes is a, another one who should be playing for England sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, I agree on Barnes. And I think their combination is is hugely Leicester. For me, Vardy is, is the most legendary player ever to play for Leicester City. He's got to be the... If they're going to have a statue of any player outside King Power, it'll be Vardy. I mean, this this guy has been an absolute hero since joining from Fleetwood, you know, all those years ago. Quite remarkable. And I, and I did a piece on strikers recently and looked into how they scored their goals. And remarkable really he, he and he and Danny Ings are basically the the most two-footed finishers in the top flight in terms of the way they spread their goals between left and right he's, he's just deadly with both yep okay last one on this batch is Liverpool Joe Gomez for me will be the one I'm looking out for he, he seems to me to make that backfall complete alongside Van Dyke. again he's had his injury issues come through them also, you know, we talked about younger players, you know, being socially aware and you know very confident socially. He is one, but also he's, you know, last time I spoke to him, he was very, he was his gratitude was very obvious for the people who helped him out when he was a young lad. You know, the sort of coaches who never really get a mention, who, you know, ferry him to trials or buy him pairs of boots because his mum and dad couldn't afford it. That type of stuff. I think he's a good character and therefore a good character for someone like Jurgen Klopp. But also, as a defender, he's got a, he's got an awful lot going for him, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's got his head screwed on, humble. And yeah, he's, he's just got the traits you, you want to see from, from a modern defender. Very athletic, powerful, reads the game well, good on the ball. Yeah, look, he's, he's tailor-made for, for international football. I think he'll win it stack of England caps over the next decade or so. Great pickup. Absolutely brilliant pickup by Liverpool. And 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 the other reason I think it, it works so well is is because of Trent Alexander Arnold and, and we know where his strengths lie. They're in the opposition half. He can defend, but he, he's not the best defensive right back. But what, what Gomez does is slide across and, and provide elements of cover on that right hand side in conjunction with Jordan Henderson actually. Those two kind of sit there and, and, and shore up any gaps that, that Trent might leave. It, it just works. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, he's, he's a key man. But look, Liverpool, are, they're home and hose. They're, they're going to they're gonna win the league in two or three games, aren't they? So yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they're going to be need too many star men between now and the end of the season to pick up silver. I'm interested in Salah. I, I love watching Salah. And and I do I just get the feeling though that if anyone might go, might be Salah. I think he's he's going to be on the radar of some really really big clubs around the world. 
So yeah, just just his mindset. Keep keep your eye on it. If it, if it's right and his head is in Liverpool, which I hope it will be, then then yeah, onwards and upwards. But it's the old it's the old maxim, isn't it? Really, recruit from a position of strength, and Liverpool will probably do that, won't they, Seb? You'd have thought so. I mean, I think I agree with that. No, I mean, um, if there is one to go, maybe it's Salah, and if that does happen, then they could do a lot worse than um, bringing Timo Werner from RB Leipzig. I, I agree. I just think one of the best things that they did last summer, or the summer before, sorry, Liverpool didn't add for the sake of adding. You know, there was no, you know, they recognised that, you know, having having signed Naby Keita before, the year before, having signed Fabinho, that there was a merit in just allowing that squad to mature a little bit and not add to it before it had reached its full potential. This summer, a little bit different because I think, you know, the position of strength is, you know, the, the overall quality in, in, the, in the group, but it's also... What else is there left to achieve? They'll be European champions. They didn't retain it, but you know they've compensated themselves by you know almost certainly winning the Premier League. So you have to you have to refresh from a, from a point of view of, of quality, but you also for the sake of appetite. Jurgen Klopp's football is very exacting. It demands a very high physical price from players. You've got to have that full buy-in. So to do that, to maintain that mixture, I think that you have to introduce from the outside. You have to give a player like a Werner the opportunity to you know, to, to, to replicate the success that someone like Salah has helped to provide. So it's really important. It's really interesting from a chemistry standpoint. It's not just what do we need in what position. It's what characters do you need not to interfere with what's been there and what's worked before. I know it's a little bit of a strange reality because of the pandemic, but it makes it a very interesting window for Liverpool. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting anyway, isn't it? Because you know, we are in uncharted territory financially it is obvious that the the market will contract to a degree uh, adrian i just want to get your thoughts on david luiz you know there are some conflicting reports but it certainly it seemed for a time that they were unlikely to re-sign him and there was a very good piece by amy lawrence where she totted up the cost of this one year deal of twenty-four million pounds, you know, with all the add-ons and all the intermediary fees. One, that's an absolutely mad deal. But two, do you think a player like Louise is worth that sort of money on a on you know on a on a one-off one-off basis? Do you mm. expect him to leave the club? <laughs> well, I don't know. Just surely before we came on air, you know, so I read some quotes from Keir Jarabchin, the, the agent who said that he's optimistic that, that they'll come to an agreement to stay and it might be on reduced terms. So he'll take a wage cut by the sounds of it to stay. Oh, look, I, I just don't want Arsenal to be that club. I mean, they were never like that when I was there. You know, <laughs> Arsenal, have always, Arsenal have always been pretty tight, you know, in terms of the way they, they, they do business. And they, I've always loved their old school nature in terms of, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to buckle. Not going to put. You're not going to pay. Obviously, they've paid agent fees down the years, but they've not been one of the worst culprits. But it does seem that the current, the current leadership group are more willing to to indulge in in those kind of deals. And I, you know, personally, I don't want that to be the norm because it, it you know it's flushing good money down the drain. In in my opinion, I, I, he's replaceable. Everybody's replaceable. He's a good player. I think his character is. is He's decent in the dressing room. He's a winner. And and I think he is worth keeping in many, many respects. But if it's going to cost a fortune, walk away. 
and and replenish the squad with with the younger model. That's that's how I'd be looking at it. Yeah, I think we're going to be seeing a couple of sort of, of attractive free agents. I think uh, Willian is probably one. I just want specifically Seb to ask you about Mario Goetze. Mm. You know, he's been overshadowed by Brandt at, uh, at Borussia. Is he the sort of reclamation project, you know, World Cup winner? He's still only twenty-seven. That a good manager, a good man manager, perhaps, can get the best out of. Uh, personally, I don't think so. I think Mario Goetze has been through a bit too much in his career. He's achieved some wonderful things. He scored the winner in a World Cup final, of course. So you can't you can't knock a career that includes that. I think he made a few poor decisions career wise in terms of when he left Dortmund, when he when he joined Bayern Munich. He also had his illness, which, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but obviously from what I've read, it seems like it was, you know, just a, a terrible thing to go through. And there's been some sort of mental health issues that came with that, I think, and some confidence problems. I think he's a, I know he's in his late 20s. I think he's a very old late 20s, if that makes sense. He's been around, I mean, we knew about Goetze and he was being talked about as a, a 50 million pound player when he was 18 years old. I think there's some value to be gained from him. I don't think there's an upswing, if that's your question, Mike. I don't think there's a kind of, there's a solution out there where it could propel him to being one of the top players in Europe again. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I just think you kind of, he belongs at a kind of, at best, a sort of Tottenham level, maybe. Tottenham, Arsenal, maybe, that that kind of club. He's not He's not going to contribute at a kind of Liverpool, Manchester City level. He's not going to play, at, you know, he's not, he's not going to a, a Real Madrid or a Barcelona. He's a, he's going to a sort of a, a high the, the the gap between the Europa League and the Champions League, that's where he'll belong, I think. Yeah. The sad truth is we all peak at different times. And like, I think he's he had his peak at a very young age. You know, my, my peak was probably about 14. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like, you know, it's downhill from there. But like we all, we all, for whatever reasons, whether it's physical, mental, luck, circumstance, whatever it is, we just peak at different times. And it does feel like, yeah, he's going to... He's going to meander along, but at a, a lower plane than maybe we expected him to. Yeah, I just want to basically bring all th- everything together now with our thoughts for the day. Hey, I hope you don't mind, but can I choose one for you? Of course, yeah. The EFL, you know, we mentioned it right at the top of the show about you know clubs being unhappy that they're being told with apparently 40 minutes notice that they are going to restart on the 20th of June. You know, you know the EFL well, uh, are you impressed by that? <laughs> Not really. No, I, uh, I've been impressed by a lot of what Rick Parry's done, but also sort of deeply unimpressed by the EFL in in general over this. No, look, communication's massive, and yeah, that that seems incredibly harsh. But the bottom line is, I think everyone wants to get back. So what's there to argue about? I, I just think move on. I, I think the EFL, what they <laughs> their biggest failing here is 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 in League One and League Two, where the clubs need authority. They need someone to to stand up and almost say, this is how we want it to be. And they haven't done that. And and I, do you know what? If League One and League Two are knocked on the head, my worry is, and, and I, I think this will happen, is that is that it will lose respect. Leagues One and League Two... With the wider public at large and the S and the SPFL in Scotland, Scottish Premier League, they lose respect for the way they've handled this. It's it's as if they they feel it, it's not not important enough. They've not worked hard enough, in my opinion, to 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 try and get back to playing. 
Why haven't the EFL? Uh, sorry, you've got, you've got me on my soapbox now. Why haven't the EFL asked the Premier League and asked the Premier League clubs, we need a bailout. We, we, we think it will be detrimental to the entire English football pyramid. If A, we lose clubs, they go to the wall, and B, if we don't try harder to, to carry on, can you give us some money to, to a solidarity package to get us to the end of this season? And to get, you know, even if it's just to get the players tested, haven't done it. It just makes me upset and angry. And I just feel the fallout will, will, continue, will rumble on because there'll be legal suits. Clubs will be so bitter about being relegated and denied the chance of promotion. It's, yeah, what was going on now is going to scar, scar the EFL for a long, long time, sadly. I mean, I'm, I'm going to leave EFL to you guys, but I, I just wanted to applaud Jaden Sancho, actually. And at the same time, uh, condemn the people that sort of seem to take such joy in, in, in telling footballers to stick to football. It's important to remember, these are not athletes who have to belong in a box. These are young men with agency. And I think we should be impl- applauding those that are worldly enough to speak out on weighty issues which matter to them. I think that's a really important currency. It's actually something that's been deficient in European football for a really long time. I mean, if you compare compare the levels of activism and social awareness that exist in American sport, for instance, versus what we've had for a long time in this country. People like Jaden Sancho are a breath, breath of fresh air, honestly, because if you if you kind of, you know, the, the willingness to stand up for yourself, the willingness not to just be become all coy when, you know, when the subject deviates from professional football, I, I think it should be welcomed. You want people speaking out, you want people that are willing to represent their own causes and, and to, you know, to oppose injustice in the world, you know, all power to them. You know, I think it's the mark of a, um, you know, a very mature young man, actually. So well done to him and well done to him for using a personal moment, you know, moment of a first goal after an injury comeback. He's got the world at his feet, but he's still aware enough to look beyond his own environment. I think that's really important. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm going to end with women's football. Now, I think it's time to be blunt. I think the FA have actually betrayed the women's game. The clubs have conspired in that by allowing the season to be cancelled. And I've got a problem with that on many levels. Cancelling a season is unfair, especially as players and clubs have invested so much of themselves in an abandoned season. It also misses a huge trick. Just imagine for a moment the impact of the Women's Super League coming back in tandem with the Premier League. What's happened now is that the clubs have said, well, look, we can't afford to do so. They've been denied wider financial support, some form of solidarity fund. And you know, women's clubs are already paupers. If you look at the FA Cup prize money, they only receive around about 1% of the men's prize money. And that's wrong. Now, UEFA are at least considering August and September tournaments to actually complete the Champions League. In this country, nothing. Now that's poor leadership and a result of defeatist thinking. It risks the progress that's been made in recent season. Not good enough. So thanks to you all for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please stay safe out there.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.